bring my speech up here. Don't want to be left speechless. Okay. Uh, the first and greatest lie. With the political season in full swing and the lies all around us at every turn, what makes me think that I can identify the greatest lie ever told? There's a lot of competition for that title, you know. Even within my lifetime, I've heard some really big whoppers, not even counting Chuck and Larry's fishtails. Now, <laughs> even from the highest office in our land, the presidency, we hear lie, lie after lie come out of the Oval Office. On November 23rd, 1963, that was the first great lie that I can remember that came out of, the Oval, came out of Washington, that some magic bullet could injure then Texas John Conley, kill JFK, change directions twice in his body without hitting a bone, only to end up in his hospital journey, gurney in pristine condition. Then we heard LBJ's lies perpetuating the Vietnam uh, conflict in, to, in order to line the pockets of the military industrial contract complex. Then we heard Tricky Dick proclaim, I am not a crook, and a plethora, amid this a plethora of evidence to the contrary. However, today, if he were to draw a California jury, I doubt he'd even be convicted. Okay. Uh, Carter told a rabbit tale or two. Later, Uncle Ronnie Reagan's voodoo economics proclaimed that the prosperity would trickle down to all levels. Well, the bottom 90% of Americans did get trickled on, but it wasn't with prosperity. Of course, we can never forget Bill Clinton's overt lie, oh, I did not have sex with that woman, as he perjured himself before Congress. Nor can we excuse G.W. Bush's uh, invasion of the sovereign nation on the pretense of looking for weapons of mass destruction in order to further the profits of big oil company, as subsequent disclosures have, re have disclosed about the uh, Iraqi oil field. And now, according to the McLaughlin Group, over the nine-year war has cost the lives of, get this, 4,485 American soldiers and cost over $850 billion at the drain on our economy. But such dishonesty is not the exclusive domain of the presidency. It permeates both houses of the Congress, for example. And in the presidential debates, we see it on both sides. So it's not, no one party has uh, jurisdiction over lying. Such prevarication leads uh, credence to the old saw. You can tell when a politician is lying, his lips move, okay? But lies are not the private domain of politicians alone. Rather, it is so common that cheating in business is the expected norm. Students cheat regularly and don't even recognize that what they're doing is cheating or dishonest. And many no longer honor their marriage vows, who having said, I do, don't. So what makes me so bold that I can identify the greatest lie ever told? Well, despite the com competition for the uh, title of greatest lie ever told, all of those that I've mentioned have been the product of human beings and therefore only have a limited scope and a limited impact. Okay. Okay. There we go. All right. Even the most sophisticated lie of a human being has but a finite impact. The lie that is truly the greatest must then not come from a human source, but from a non-human source, from the father of lies himself, Satan, the great deceiver. <coughs> Sorry. 
Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, <clears throat> for he is a lie, liar and the father of it. Further, we find that Satan has been most effective in his lie, so much so that as Revelation 12:19 declares, and the great dragon, okay, where did it go? Okay, we can have. Brian, it's not working. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, and, uh, Revelation twelve nineteen tells us the great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast down to his earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, truly, effective lies are not only negations of observable facts, rather, the, truth, the truly effective lie is subtle. It's often a counterfeit of a truth that makes us miss the mark just enough to be wrong. It has a semblance of truth so tempting that we often swallow the lie unknowingly. It's like a tiny bit of cyanide injected into the food or drink so that if we swallow the poison, we don't realize it until after the poison has already had its effect or done its work and then it's too late. But which of Satan's many lies would rank as the greatest? There we go. Okay. Uh, ironically, what I consider to be the greatest lie was also his first lie, the one that he delivered to a naive, innocent, trusting human being shortly after their creation. In English, it's composed of only five little words. Here they are. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Five little words in English. Do you realize how clever that is? How subtle this lie is? It is a lie that works in, a multiple, in multiple directions simultaneously, and it has far-reaching con uh, consequences and many, many byproducts. First, let's just consider the act of lying itself, how really subtle this lie is. Satan delivered this lie to our first parents, Adam and Eve, who had previously only known God, who is truth. So they were completely ignorant of any lies up until that point. So... Um, they had never known lies before to see, and they were completely trusting. They're vulnerable. So when Satan tempted Eve, her lack of experience with lies let her believe his lie, especially since he appealed to her senses, like a scientific observation, and, and that she would become as gods, knowing good and evil. And what trusting child does not want to become like his parents and to make her doubt God? How subtle that is. Satan's first and greatest carefully crafted and calculated lie not only dispensed misinformation, but more importantly, it undermined the trust relationship between God and his human creation. In the forensics of logic, we call such a tactic poisoning the well, 
by tainting the listener's trust in the speaker. The attacker makes all of the speaker's statements suspect from that, for that listener from that point forward. Just so, Satan's lie poisoned the trust between Adam and Eve that Adam and Eve had with God. Thus, the very act of lying itself introduced deception, doubt, distrust into a previously trusting creation and infected us with a virus of deceitfulness that we have passed on to successive generations with far-reaching consequences. And often, we don't even recognize our own deceitfulness. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Indeed, just as we are the progeny of Adam and Eve, so are all human, be human lies the progeny of this in initial lie. A lie that had such a profound effect on human relationship to God that in order to heal the rift created by the lie, it required the blood sacrifice of God's only son. Note that it was not the content of the lie that created the chasm of trust, but merely the act of lying itself. Now, let's examine the content of the lie. In English, just five little words comprise the lie. You shall not surely die. But the implication of those words reach from the mundane to the metaphysical. At the mundane level, it is verifiably false. For all who've ever lived and are not currently breathing have ended their earthly lives and have died. They have kicked the bucket, bought the farm, pushing up daisies, providing food for warm worms. They are ex-beings. However, humanity does not want to believe this truth about the peace of death, but would rather believe Satan's lie that we live forever. So, faced with the reality of death, but wanting to believe Satan's lie, human beings created the myth of the immortal soul, a doctrine nowhere authorized by the written word of God. On Friday, 6th of July uh, this, of this past year, uh, 2012, ABC aired a 2020 broadcast on the popular belief that we go to heaven or hell when we die, and, that the, and the terrorist uh, fallout from that belief. Do you realize how far-sighted and how clever Satan was in this lie? He appealed to man's short-term vanity and encouraged him to create a myth of the immortal soul whose consequences are staggering. This myth devalues our mortal existence, for it holds that the real self is something non-corporeal, that our bodies are like clothing for the soul. Although, admittedly, some of us are dressed in Prada while others are in Kmart specials. Uh, that we want to divest ourselves of the mortal coils as soon as possible in order to reunite, reunite your God. In this myth of the immortal soul that allows the concept of ghosts, goblins, ghouls, zombies, vampires, and all the other undead. If there were no immortal soul, all of these stupid stitions would disappear. It is the myth of the immortal soul that allows the concept of an afterlife as reward or punishment and that allows human beings to transform into angels or demons at, at, at death. An angel gets his bell, it gets his wings, a bell goes off according to some superstitions. It is the notion of an immortal soul that allows the Hindu concept of transmigration and ascension, where we are reborn into another body over and over and over again until we get it right or can ascend to a higher plane of existence. It is the myth of the immortal soul that has built the pyramids. 
It is the myth of the immortal soul that denies the resurrections and the forgiveness of God. For what need would there be for a resurrection if the true self were already alive and happy and living with God? It is precisely this belief in an afterlife that has encouraged idolatry, human sacrifice, ornate burial practices throughout human civilization. How many millions have died too young, clinging to a belief oh, that things will be better in the next life? And just get out of this one, things will be better in the next life. Note, too, that an afterlife for the incorrigibly wicked in, a, in popular belief would then consist of eternal punishment, transforming our loving God into a sadistic grand inquisitor, taking delight in the screams and anguish of sin, sinful human beings. The lie exposed. First, empirical science can neither disprove nor substantiate the existence of an immortal soul. For empiricism deals only with the material world, with matter and energy. Real, really, it has no jurisdiction over things that are incorporeal. As far as science is concerned, a human life exists as a separate identity only during the relatively brief period from conception to its death, when it ceases to function and renew dead, uh, dead cells. Hence, the true scientist cannot substantiate the survival of the self beyond the decay of the body. Nor can logic substantiate immortal soul, despite what Plato may have said in the Phaedra. In fact, logic tends to lend evidence to the non-existence of such entities. But first we need some definitions in logic. Most immortal soul advocates would agree that the soul is some non-material entity that together with the physical body comprises a self. That is to say, the body by itself is not the whole self, that there's some non-material part of the self generally described as the consciousness or personality of the self. That this body and soul maintain some kind of epiphenomenological relationship to one another. If so, then that self necessarily cannot survive death. For let's first assume that the soul does assume. That soul by, it, by itself, by definition, is no more the same self that existed prior to death since it's missing its physical part than is the physical cadaver without the alleged non-physical part. Further, let's examine the nature of this disembodied soul. While in the body, it was the consciousness of the self. Consciousness is dependent upon sense organs. When the body loses a sense organ, the consciousness experiences the loss of the sense. Blind people do not see. Deaf people do not hear. People who have nerve damage do not feel. Now, consider a completely disembodied soul with no sense organs to provide new experiential input those disembodied souls have a finite and closed set of experiences. The set of permutations on a finite set is also finite, although it may be very large. Thus, given an infinite amount of time and whatever rate you want to have the soul use up those permutations or experience those permutations, those permutations would be used up eventually, at which point the soul, for practical purposes, would be dead. Thus. Disembodied souls are not immortal. Now, some may argue that reincarnation could account for the soul's gaining new experiences. But this concept is so absurd that even popular comedians can see through it and exploit it for its comic potential. 
Here I borrow a routine from the late uh, great George Carlin. This is from, this is paraphrased from Live at Carnegie Hall. It goes like this. Almost everyone will agree that once upon a time there had to be at least six people on earth. There's some debate about whether there were ever just two, but everyone will agree that there had to be at least six. Each of these uh, people was or had a soul. Six bodies, six souls, no problem. But now, now there are over six billion people on earth, all of whom are claiming to have a soul. Where do they come from? I know. Someone's printing up souls. And they're losing their value. Inflation, you know. Now, admittedly, Carlin's routine was designed for comedy and not for philosophical argument, but it has hit upon some significant points that are fraught with problems. If souls are intelligent entities with volition capable of migrating through bodies and time according to some karmic law, whenever the previous body becomes too decrepit or injured to continue function and therefore dies, then how do we account for the multitude of human beings with souls alive today, especially since there are more people alive today than the sum of all the people who've ever been in existence. Does someone or something manufacture souls? Who or what assigns them to their respective bodies? The law of karma? I notice that, co that contemporary reincarnation advocates, such as Shirley MacLaine and others, who claim to be in touch with their past lives, often claim to have been famous people. Sometimes several persons in the same generation can all claim to have been the same person. Think about that. How can that happen? How is that possible? Are particularly powerful souls, something like corporate stock, and that can accrue dividends and split so that multiple persons can all claim to have the same soul? That's what's going on? Do these egotistical souls, especially the powerful ones, ever fight for the best bodies? Can a strong soul with the experience of many lifetimes kill a newly manufactured soul and take over the possessful body? If so, if so, then souls are not immortals. Oh, that would just kill the other one, didn't it? And are subject to destruction and are hence not immortal. However, if a soul cannot evict another soul from a body, then it can only enter soulless bodies or float around on some ethereal never-never land where they eventually die, as my previous argument showed. In addition, the goal of souls in Hinduism and those sects of Buddhism that advance transmigration is to escape the cycle of uh, life and death, to enter what they call nirvana or extinction of the self and ego. In fact, in Hinduism and Buddhism, the concept of an individual ego is considered an illusion. It's considered an illusion. In fact, these souls, these disembodied souls are kept alive um, primarily through Western sects of churchianity who have appropriated the name of Christ, but few of his teachings. Instead, they propagate the um, ancient Greek, Egyptian, and Babylonian myth of an immortal soul and afterlife since the concept of an immortal soul has no basis 
no basis in any true Judeo-Christian scripture, as I shall demonstrate shortly. Moreover, the written tradition of Judaism, the law, and the prophets does not advocate an afterlight. The concept only occurs within the Kabbalah and those portions of the Talmud that corrupted by the Babylonian sources. If you want more detail on that, go see um, uh, Hyssop's, uh, Hyssop's uh, Two Babylons or Ralph Woodrow's ba Babylonian Mystery Religion. Numerous other sources can all substantiate that. Further, I'm being quite generous when I grant these disembodied souls volition and the ability to enter a living body for deprived of their sense organs, what? They could not even possibly recognize the presence of a living body, even if it were directly in front of them. So the whole question of transmigration becomes moot and little more than an academic exercise. Nowhere. So let's put the uh, question of the immortality of the soul to the Bible directly. But nowhere, nowhere in the Bible do I find the phrases eternal soul or immortal soul. It's just not there. Use your concordances. Use your electronic Bible search program. You won't find it. It ain't there. Okay. Nor do I find indica any indication at all that we have souls. Instead, I find that we are souls, living creatures, as the Hebrew word nephesh, Okay, as the Hebrew word nephesh actually meant. Um, and we find that uh, man became a living soul. Genesis 2-7. God formed man from the dust of the earth, breathed into his life, into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He was not one. He did not have one. He became this living being. Uh, truly, there's a reference to eternal life, which is always mentioned in the future tense, never in the present. And truly, the Apostle Paul tells us that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Right, but we are not to assume from that that some immortal soul is to inherit it. No, that would be a faulty reference. Rather, we would, should read the revelation of God according to the Apostle Paul a little bit further to discover that our fleshy mortal bodies will be changed, changed in the twinkling of an eye, in an instant, to bodies composed of spirit, the most powerful substance in the universe, which I strongly suspect is dark matter, or what scientists are calling dark matter, that just as we become immortal souls born of the first Adam, so shall the spirit beings born of Christ the second Adam, so shall we become, those spirit beings. Instead of establishing the immortality of the soul, as most people being brainwashed by the propaganda of Catholic, Protestant, churchianity have assumed, numerous scriptures confirm the soul mortality. Most blatantly, it occurs twice for emphasis in the 18th chapter of Ezekiel. Here, look at it. The soul that sins, it shall die. Twice. In the 4th verse and in the 20th verse of Ezekiel 18. Now, that's not enough. Let's try this one. If we consider then, since we know that, law, that sin is the transgression of the law, we know from Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that the wages of sin is death. What's the natural conclusion of this? We all die. That's it. We, can, we must conclude the soul is mortal. 
It is not eternal life in heaven or some icy inferno or some ever-burning hell, but it is instead death. It is the termination of existence. Even Adam, the first man, the dust of the earth, sorry, um, that became a living soul, knew of his mortal nature from the beginning, for God warned him. Look, in verses in 3.19, we see that he is made of the dust of the earth. And in 2.17, we say, But of the tree of life, of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. But he chose not to believe God. He chose instead to believe Satan's lie. In Psalms 40, 14 and, th and 63, 9, we've got two for, uh, statements from David. David admonishes those who seek after his soul to destroy it. See it? Seek after his soul to destroy it. And um, both of those verses. In Ezekiel 22, if you notice that we've got, I've got them highlight, the, the highlighted portion, there are devoured souls and destroyed souls here. If you read the whole passage, you'll see those as well. And that the princes in the midst of the, are like wolves that are ravening, uh, ravening the prey, to shed blood, to destroy a soul, to get dishonest gain. Elihu, a friend of Job, is concerned about Job's soul draweth near to the grave. Um, and in the Psalms, we find souls delivered from death. Who is to question the authority of the, those who question the authority of the Old Testament may be interested to discover? The soul hasn't acquired immortality in the New Testament either. Matthew uh, 10, 28 says, Fear not them that are able to kill the body, that are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If it can be destroyed, if it's necessary to be protected, if it, need, if it can be devoured, if it can be killed, if it can be any of those things, it can't be mortal. It can't be immortal. It must be mortal. Paul even said... Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. Um, anyone that brings an errant sinner back from the truth, back to the truth, shall save a soul from death. In 1 Thessalonians uh, 5.23, we say, uh, see Paul praying that their whole spirit and soul and body be preserved. In each of these cases, again, notice, if the soul can die, can be killed, can be devoured, can be destroyed, is in need of protection and preservation, if a soul can die, it is necessarily not immortal. Further, the concept of an immortal soul is inconsistent with the principal theme of resurrection that is strongly advanced in 1 Corinthians 15. For what is the purpose of a resurrection? What is the purpose of a resurrection if the soul is already in heaven or hell? I'm going to go ahead and take the time to read this one because it is an important piece. Okay, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 23. Now, Christ be not, uh, preached. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? If, if Christ is not risen, then 
is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also in vain. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. And they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. If, if in this life we have hope of, in Christ, that we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of the, of the sleep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. Uh, for as in Adam all die in Christ, even so all shall be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, uh, afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised, up, uh, whom He raised not up. If it be that the dead, that dead rise not. Okay. Indeed, as Paul asserts, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is in vain, and those who have died are perished. Then we are of most men all miserable. Paul makes an important statement. Paul makes any future life completely dependent upon resurrection from the dead, not upon some immortal soul floating around in limbo. I'm out of time. Can't be. Um, okay. Truth about death. I've got to do this part. The truth. Back up. So what does the Bible say happens to us after death? Absolutely nothing. At death, we cease to be, except as a memory for the next generation or two, or some obscure reference in the history book if we made a significant enough contribution to humanity, perhaps as the name of a street, a building, or a scholarship fund. King Solomon the preacher, in all his wisdom, made plain this important proof, truth. In Ecclesiastics, 9 verses 5 and 10 we read for the living know that shall, they shall die but the dead know not anything neither have they any more reward for the memory of them is forgotten whatever thy hand finds to do then do it with thy might for there is no work nor device nor knowledge nor wisdom in the grave whether thou goest the preacher further warns us back in Ecclesiastes 3 19 uh, for that which befalls the son of man, uh, man falleth, befalleth beast, even one thing befalls them. Uh, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. They all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. Solomon's father, David, a man after God's own heart, also sang of what happens to a man after death. Uh, his breath goeth forth. He returns to earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. And even Job, who had suffered unequal misery, still preferred that misery to death. For he knew that man lies down, he rises not. Until the heavens be no more, they shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. At death, we simply cease to be, and we stay in our graves. We are not translated to some watered-down waiting room version of the paradise or torment commonly believed to await each individual. If such were so, and it certainly is not, then surely David, the patriarch of the father of the tribe of Judah, the ancestor human Christ, would have certainly gone to heaven. Further, however, we find uh, Peter, in his powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost as recorded by Luke, warning his brethren against the popular Greek notion of an immortal soul, using David as an example. No man has ascended to heaven except he that came down from, from heaven. And this, 
Okay, I went back one more. Okay, down to the bottom. For David is not ascended to heaven, for he has himself said, The Lord said unto my God, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. And then um, John extends it more in John 3, 13. And no man hath ascended into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Even the, the common verse that most people cite, John 3, 16, says what? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here the word perish is in direct opposition to life. So life and death are opposites. Indeed, biblical scripture without Catholic Protestant doctrination implies that we cease to be until and unless the eternal God, out of mercy and grace, decides to reconstruct us. And to restore the life that we have, had, we have had. Otherwise, we remain in our graves, dead to the world, completely helpless, and dependent upon God for any future life. Further, some of the prophecies indicate that the Lord Eternal does have power to call forth from the grave and to restore uh, physical life, as illustrated in the, the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel uh, 37, where bone upon bone, the joined together, sinew upon sinew, uh, skin rising upon to create a massive army before the Lord. Therein lies the true faith in God. To die knowing knowing that we will be absolutely dead. Knowing that we will be absolutely dead. Not still alive floating around some ethereal plane uh, as an immortal soul but absolutely dead. And knowing that our only hope for life after death lies strictly in God's infinite grace and love. And I guess I have to cut it short here. It's going to have to be a Ron Wilhoyd. Um, all right, so I will pick up here, I guess, next time. I've only got, well, I've only got three pages, but it's, it's very important pieces of information to go. Okay. I thought it would fit within the time limit.